to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave. I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Joining us today, we have PC Ben Gates. Now, Ordinarily, I would do a kind of introductory spiel to talk about who Ben is and, and why he's joining us today. But I think today I'm going to let him introduce himself and we'll go from there. Ben, thanks so much for coming on and, and chatting to us. No, thank you very much for having me, Dave. What's the day job? What is it you did before the incident that we're going to chat through? Uh, so before the incident, I was a roads policing officer. So obviously a normal police constable, but we specialise in dealing with incidents on our major networks, including serious injury and fatal collisions. So whereabouts were you based? Uh, so I am based in Stevenage, which was the, the county of Hertfordshire. But we cover all of Hertfordshire and we share Bedfordshire as a responsibility between the south base and the north base, which is in Huntingdon in Cambridgeshire. So quite a bit of geography to cover. What are the kind of typical things that a, a day would involve? So our day-to-day role is looking at areas that are impacted by either fatal or serious injury collisions. So we'd look at certain towns or roads and we'd look at going to those locations and doing some speed enforcement. We would patrol the major networks and deal with offences that we come across, such as no insurance, no tax, vehicles that are being used in a dangerous condition, as long as looking at overweight vehicles and driver's hours for those who are driving heavy goods vehicles. And then we get thrown into the mix of the serious injury and fatal collisions at the matter where they occur, as that is for us to investigate. So a lot of kind of preventative work trying to avoid collisions, accidents, and I guess by extension, injuries. Yes, definitely. Okay. So we're kind of beating around the bush a little bit here, but you're involved in an incident that has been, I think, pretty profound is probably the best way to put it. Um, yeah, he keeps one way to put it. <laughs> can, you, can you talk us through, just from the, the start of that day, how things went as much as you remember them? Yeah, of course. So, so bear with me, though. So it was, the, uh, it was the 10th of June, 2019. I was on a night shift, which for us is a 9 o'clock start and a 6 a.m. finish. During the day, it was torrential rain all day. The roads were extremely wet, and as you can imagine, there was plenty of surface water. Me and one of my, my very good friends said that well, we'll, we'll work together tonight because we haven't got to work with each other for, for quite some time. And, you know, we'll go out and we'll tow some cars that have crashed and we'll find out where the flooded lanes are and you know, we'll, we'll just have a, generally a busy evening because of the road condition. It was my colleague, Craig, it was his turn to drive as we obviously like to take things in turn and being all fair. Uh, and he said, oh, I've got, um, I've got a 3 Series and there's you know, a BMW 3 Series. And I said, well, I've got an X5 because it is wet we can tow with those and you know, we might be able to get through some of the flood water that we come across. So the decision was made between us that Craig would drive and we'd, we'd take the X5. And about quarter to 10, 10 to 10 at night, one of our colleagues who was already working had been asked to attend a three-vehicle collision on the northbound VA1. So we said, as that unit was unmarked, we would take our vehicle onto the A1 I would go southbound, turn around, and obviously come back northbound to assist him. Now, we joined the A1 at Junction 7, which is the kind of South Stevenage Junction. And 
within less than a mile, our vehicle aquaplaned and it left the road. So the, the vehicle basically lost traction. We looked to the right a little bit and there was a, a very violent exit stage left. My memories from that point is remembering that we were the wrong side of the Armco collision barrier. I remember the, the sounds and the sights of the branches and the leaves being uh, broken by our car, our lights reflecting off the wet leaves. My last memory at that point was seeing the tree which we struck. And it must have been the biggest tree that we could have found on the A1, knowing us. So the collision occurred and the vehicle has gone into the air slightly and has rotated and landed on the driver's side. I don't remember much of that. I remember a lot of the noise of the the metal crunching and the glass smashing. But my next kind of conscious memory, I came round. So I wasn't completely unconscious, but due to having some kind of injury to my head, obviously I was, I was rather dazed. My first reaction or the first thing I noticed was that my lower right leg had a double fracture. Obviously I appreciate a lot of your listeners, Dave, are within the world of healthcare and dealing with such incidents. So I'm sure you don't mind me saying is the feeling of it being completely floppy was my instant reaction that this is at least a, a double fracture. And then my first thought after that was, oh, I hope there's nothing sticking out. So I obviously make sure Craig's okay and I'm suspended in my seat, dangling over Craig and my nose is bleeding. I have a nice round laceration underneath my chin, which is also bleeding a fair bit. And that's all going on to Craig. So I tell Craig that my leg's broken. And I'd say it's not too short of a miracle, but that night Craig put a seatbelt cutter in his stab vest. So Craig's passed me the seatbelt cutter. I've cut my seat and very ungracefully fallen onto Craig. I've dragged myself into the back of the vehicle and then Craig has freed himself. Whilst we was surveying the inside of our vehicle and trying to find a way out, the engine caught fire. So a combination of the hot engine, the leaves on the ground, the oil that had come out of the heavily damaged engine had caused the fire to begin. And I distinctly remember hearing the sound of that little poof that you kind of get when you start a barbecue, uh, seeing the, the warm orange glow and then seeing the fire starting to spread. So Craig picks up a radio that's on the ground. He activates the emergency button and he very clearly says, we have crashed, we are trapped and the car is on fire. Now, speaking to colleagues who heard that message across the airwaves, it's affected them quite greatly. And I can only imagine the fear and the thoughts they must have had when they heard such a message from, you know, from, from colleagues. So I'm sat in the back of the car, Craig's hobbling around, trying to stand up as best as he can. And I noticed the rear passenger window, which is now above my head, is still intact. So I break the window with my fist and Craig climbs out first. I was very conscious to let Craig out first. You know, he has a, he has a little boy, he has a wife. Uh, I appreciate I have a family, but I'd rather make sure they were well looked after in the long term. And part of me kind of thought, you know, this, this could be the end. So Craig gracefully clambers out of the window as, as he does. And I zip up my coat and I make sure it covers my mouth and my nose because I subconsciously have a thought about smoke inhalation. You know, I'm not going to be any use if I can't get out of this, if I'm suffering smoke inhalation. And then my final memory, my final thought of this is, this is it. This is the end. And it's quite a, a scary thought, but it was rather peaceful that, 
you know, that, that thought of me sitting in the back of the car thinking that, you know, death is here, really. But two gentlemen who were traveling northbound on the A1 saw the crash occur. They turned around at the junction, came back southbound, and they dragged me out. So reading one of the, the male's statements, uh, he says that he thought that when he looked into the severely damaged floor, which was a footwell of where I was sitting, he was expecting to see somebody either deceased or being burnt. And when he looked in through the rear window, because Craig was telling him, you know, where's Ben, make sure you get Ben, he saw the reflective material of my coat. He's reached in, grabbed it and pulled, and I was on the end of it. I don't remember any of that. I don't remember being pulled from the vehicle. I don't remember, you know, all of the smoke billowing out. My last memory is seeing that fire encroaching into the cabin and coming towards me. So my next memory after that is being dragged away from the vehicle. I remember seeing the vehicle in flames. I remember a, a very, a very weird feeling of my, my leg was hopping across the broken branches and, leg, and branches and twigs and whatever other debris was across the ground. And I was dragged towards the main carriageway. The gentleman said, let's pick him up. No, let's pick him up. And I said, no. I said, don't pick me up because of my leg. So my leg's broken in two places, slide me underneath the barrier, that way thinking I can keep my leg as flat as possible, prevent any further damage. And they listened and dragged me into lane two of the A1. Uh, from there, uh, we had a, a first responder, paramedic, uh, my colleagues obviously all came en masse. Obviously the fire service turned up to obviously deal with the fire and to obviously assist as best as they could. So that's how it all happened. <laughs> that's how it all happened. Like just you know, just a just a flippant casual thing that happens on a daily basis. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but the final prognosis of all of it was five fractures to the lower part of my right leg on the, the tib and fib. I shattered my L five vertebrae, twelve broken ribs, cracked sternum, and a chipped tooth. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that that was it really. <laughs> I mean, hugely harrowing and you know, pretty profound incident to be involved with and it strikes me as quite incredible how much a time kaleidoscopes in you know you were probably in that vehicle for a fairly short number of minutes from the sounds of it yeah but yeah. there's a, a huge detailed recollection of what's happened almost nanosecond by nanosecond yeah i think when we're in those kind of situations and i think it does have something to do with what we do we analyze everything and we take a lot of information in I think that's a key part that's played there. I guess also part of that is kind of replaying it because from the sounds of it, you weren't going to be hopping straight out of bed and, and going home the next day. And we'll come to that in a second. But, you know, replaying that and, and reliving that experience over the coming weeks and months. Yeah, a lot of that reliving was speaking to family and friends, colleagues, speaking to those who support us, such as our police federation and my senior managers. And when people ask what happened from giving advice to people who have dealt with traumatic incidents previously, I always say, you know, talk about it, get it out. And that for me was that point of the more I talk about it, the more I can try and normalize it, make it seem rational. Obviously at the beginning, that was never going to happen straight away. But over time, it's definitely something that I think has helped. One of the things that I'm becoming more aware of, I think, over the time that I've been going to incidents is that little things that I do or don't do and the things that I say have a pretty profound, you know, they might be throwaway things for me, but they have a big impact on the patients. And I wonder, once you were out on the road and once folks started turning up and the cavalry was arriving, was your experience of being the patient in the middle of all of that? 
my experience is quite unique. Obviously, when yourself and I go to incidents, we're dealing with complete strangers, people we've never met before, we know nothing about them. With my incident, the first responder knew me by name from incidents that we dealt with previously. But for me, the key things that he'd done was he kept me informed. He told me about everything that he was doing. He didn't tell me that everything was going to be okay. He didn't tell me that he knew exactly what was wrong with me. He was just very open and honest. So, yes, we have at least a double fracture to the lower part of my leg. He did instantly say, there's nothing protruding. We're happy everything's contained. At that time, it was anyway. And he listened to what I wanted. So we're very possessive over our kit. And he was like, I'm going to cut your kit off. I was like, no, I'd like to sit up. I appreciate in some circumstances, allowing a patient to move freely in such a way or even to sit up is frowned upon. In my situation, it probably should have been as well with the obviously dealing with an unknown broken back. But he listened to me. He worked with me. And I said, is that openness that reassured me because I knew... I wasn't going to get any nasty surprises then and there. This case, right, you know, I'm going to give you X amount of painkillers. This is how you're going to start feeling. Let me know if you feel cold. Let me know if you feel warm. Let me know if you feel sick. It was having a great line of communication and building that kind of rapport where you have such trust in that person from the word go, really. It's really interesting. I think a lot of the time... It's changing in hospital, but in the pre-hospital world, we do stuff to patients. As you're saying, we, we go in there and we cut clothes off and we, we sometimes tell the patient what we're doing. I think we're guilty of not always putting the patient in the middle of the care that we're given. And it sounds like, in your experience, that was really important to you. Massively. And this is the first time anybody's actually asked me about my experience from this angle. And just sitting here thinking about it now is, obviously, when, when it happens, or if it happens to you and I, it's everyday routine, isn't it? We're used to putting people on spinal boards and trunk rolling them. And we're used to people having blocks put either side of their head to support them. And now thinking back on it from, from this point of view of that's actually quite a scary thing to have done to you if you don't know what's happening. Now, like I said, to you and I, that's an everyday occurrence. And at the time, I knew that was going to happen and I knew why it was happening. But for somebody who isn't trained like ourselves having all of that done to you, which is quite big overall, isn't it? Like being put on a spinal board, well, why do you need to put on a spinal board? You you start to panic and people in those situations, their their adrenaline's already heightened, their fear's already kind of heightened. So you're worrying about the worst. And I think being told why it's being done, just saying, you know, it is just routine just to prevent any further injury or just in case there are other injuries that we aren't aware of internally. I think that can play a big part. Yeah, I think it was really potentially comforting if people know what's happening to them and it's not a cause for concern it is just a precautionary measure a lot of the things we do to patients are quite disempowering we strap them down on a spinal board or we put them in c-spine immobilization and then we cut their clothes off we do sort of invasive things and poke needles into blood vessels and splint legs and do all sorts of stuff that is it's pretty invasive and chatting with folk in the emergency room a lot of the time they feel as though they're almost being carried along and like a, a victim of what we're doing to them. Mm. I think over time, though, regardless of you know, your profession or what you do, when we deal with these incidents on a regular basis, we do become slightly desensitised. You know, if in our world we're used to seeing people who have sadly passed away following a road traffic collision, your first two, three, four, or five may have some kind of impact and effect on you. And I'm sure the same is obviously when yourselves as medical professionals attend incidents. 
the, the first severe, severe head injury or nasty fracture. They stick with you, but over time, the more you deal with them, the less you have that conscious thought about it. Clearly, after the kind of initial noise and, and getting you packaged up, you were then presumably transported to hospital and went through all the routine investigations. I just want to touch on the long tail of these accidents and injuries and the journey of rehab, which I think has been quite a, you know, a different experience for you as well. Yeah, yeah, it has. So, so my injuries came about from obviously the GANs and x-rays and everything else we had on the Wednesday. So the collision happened late on the Monday night and on the Wednesday I was operated on where they put a metal pin or a metal rod in my right leg from my knee to my ankle. And then they put metal work in the lower part of my spine to support the fracture site. And I spent a week in hospital. So Monday to Monday, I was in hospital. And obviously it was home for some rest and some, some good food and you know, just <laughs> home comforts, really. And from there, the, the ball kind of got rolling quite quickly. Due to the nature of the accident, you know, it happened on duty. We have some very good support mechanisms in place. And I was given a and still have even, a rehabilitation manager. And she manages, obviously, all of my physiotherapy and hydrotherapy. Now, the big thing for me was getting back to the gym, getting my strength back up, make sure we don't overdo it. And when I first met my physio, it was a case of, right, what do you want to do? What do you need to be able to do? What can you actually do? And it was learning my new body, if that makes sense, learning what I can do now, or can't do now even, but I could before. So a lot of things started slow, so you know, just body-weighted exercises, just moving my leg back and forth. And the key part at the start was learning to walk. So I've never used crutches before. I've never even broken a bone before in you know the 25 years of my life when the collision occurred. So I had to learn to use crutches, then I had to learn to walk, had to use a Zimmer frame. We were lent a wheelchair to get out and about if we couldn't use the crutch in certain situations. So once we were back up and walking, it was then looking at the damage that was caused to the muscles from them not being used for such a period of time. And just walking upright, it's kind of like a, a scene of, of evolution, really. Starting, you know, laying in a bed, then sitting up on your own, then with crutches and all the rest. And as that progressed, we then took it to hydrotherapy with the, the same physio. And that was all about continuing that strengthening and making sure, you know, what are the aches and pains that we have and how can we combat these? Is it a mobilization issue? Is it a muscular thing? Is it even a metalwork issue? So a lot of the things that I couldn't do previously was because of the metalwork that was in my back. It was in there for a reason and it prevented me from doing certain movements. So that was removed at the end of uh, November last year and that helped. And now some of the aches and pains we get are due to the metalwork in my leg. Two of the screws below my knee need to come out as they're causing the pain. But again, it's identifying these things. It's going through the rehab and just understanding all of why, why all of this happens. It's amazing that you know, you've talked about the best part of two years worth of rehab for an accident, but probably, I don't know the exact timelines, but I would imagine that you were, were in that pre-hospital space for probably less than an hour from the sounds of what you've described. And an hour to us equals two plus years to you and multiple operations and hours and days of life rebuilding what's happened. Yeah, it's still ongoing. And obviously, like any recovery, and um, I've kind of said this on my Twitter before, there's always ups and downs and it is a long road. We don't categorise things as 
life-changing if we don't need to. And now I've experienced it. I understand why we have this category of life-changing injuries because it has changed my life and it will change my life carrying on because something I'm going to have to deal with. So you said, yes, when we're there and we're dealing with people then and now, but it's all in front of us, that is just a tiny, tiny percentage, even potentially less than 1% of that time of somebody's recovery. And that can have a, a great impact on it. You said quite candidly that you've spent a lot of time talking about this and you've been pretty public with what happened and with your rehab and with the journey that you've been on. I wonder how easy it was to relive those initial moments early on. And is there anything that we as medical professionals could have done to make that process easier? So from early on, it was difficult. Very, very difficult. I remember on the, I think it was potentially the, the Monday after the collision, I was visited by two of my federation representatives and just being able to be wheeled off my ward because I'd spent the Tuesday to the Friday in, in critical care and then on Friday evening I went to a ward and to a Monday. But just being taken off of the ward and taken down to the canteen to have a coffee and you know a bit of cake and just realising that this has happened and realising the enormity of it hit me quite hard. And speaking about it initially and addressing that it happened was extremely difficult. I'd, I'd love to say that when I talk about it now, it doesn't have some kind of effect or it doesn't make me reflect and think about it that little bit deeper each time because it does. And I think I'd be very unhuman of me for it to not have an effect. But it, it does get easier. It has got easier. I'm more comfortable and open about talking about the thoughts and feelings that are associated with it now because I understand that it's natural especially when we go into the world of the mental health and the trauma that's caused by it, such as the PTSD, it does have a great effect. But thinking about how you guys as first responders could impact that, I think it's not right to say, you know, make it an enjoyable experience. I think it's just remembering that your patient is a person. They are human. What you say and do at that time is going to have a long-lasting effect. They are going to remember that. And I'm sure we obviously do our roles because we want to have a positive impact on people and we want to make them better and improve their lives. So by addressing them by their first name, being open to them and building that rapport and asking them questions about themselves to distract them and answering their questions honestly when they ask as well, I think that can have a great positive impact because nobody likes being lied to. And I'm not saying that you know we lie to patients in these situations but if someone asks us a question and we know the answer, I think we should be giving them that answer then and there because later on down the line, such as when we go to you know, the hospital and we're in recess or A&E and doctors are reading out your list of injuries and you say, oh, but no, the paramedic didn't say that at the time. Such a simple comment such as, well, they should have been able to identify it, could then have that negative impact of well why didn't they tell me at the time you know did he know what they're doing what else could have gone wrong and that's something that somebody else actually said to me a while ago and you think actually that's a very good point of be open and honest answer the questions and tell them outright if it is an answer that you know because i think i would rather know then and there and then rather you know have it sprung on me later on 
Absolutely. And I think this, in many senses, goes back to the line that is often talked about in medicine, but I don't think we're necessarily particularly good at doing, which is putting the patient at the centre of the care that we give and making ultimately you as the patient are the important bit of the journey, not necessarily the facts or our comfort in what we feel happy chatting about. It's what you want to know that's the important thing. Yeah, definitely. I was about you potentially being desensitised. And for, for us, some jobs are just a job it's what we do so we don't have that personal connection but i think it takes these occasions to remember that people that we're dealing with are human i said they're they're not one of our dolls or mannequins that we practice on so just because we turn up and you know it might be a certain scenario you've dealt with before you know how you're going to deal with it there is still somebody who's very much human at the center of that and remembering that and treating them such i think or just being conscious of that can go a long way the last thing i want to touch on is pain and there's quite a lot of okay. research going into looking at the initial management of pain. But I'm very aware that different people's experience of the pain that they suffer is, is hugely varied. Seems like an odd question. How, how was the experience of pain for you, you know, when you're out there lying on that road with a freshly snapped leg? Could we be good at getting control of your pain? Did you feel that we addressed your pain? Short answer to that would be yes. Digging a, a bit deeper into it is at the time with the amount of adrenaline that was kind of coursing through my veins and my mind was racing at 100 miles an hour I wasn't conscious of my pain the pain started to set in and predominantly on my leg everywhere else was a bit sore from the seatbelt but the pain within my leg started to kick in when I started to become cold you know I was already wet because it took some time for the fire service to arrive and put a tarpaulin over us and when I started to become cold and wet and started to shiver that's when the, the pain started to kick in and I think the pain scale is a great thing to use and I know everybody uses it by being asked of where my pain was the first responding paramedic was very good at combating that pain and quickly as well so yeah that was very good but again it needed that good communication and asking the right questions so you can actually get the right kind of answer and interesting that cold and pain there's a lot of crossover between them and things like shivering when you've got a fracture are a huge problem and, and make it very difficult from our point of view to control that pain because clearly your shivering muscles are going to jiggle the ends of the fracture against each other. Yeah, as soon as I started to get cold, I'd been in the road for some time. I was then very quickly packaged up and boarded and put in the back of an ambulance where things got a little bit warmer. So it was quite comforting because it made me realise that I was being listened to. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's a problem for us as rural and remote responders in Scotland. A certain frustration is that a lot of the time we're waiting for a, a protracted period because the ambulance is coming from many miles away and being stuck with somebody on the side of a road where you don't have the ability to keep them warm and to look after them in the sense of being able to get them out of the weather and, and get them into a warm room and keep them as comfortable as you can. That can be pretty frustrating. Yeah, I bet. I think we're extremely lucky in our situations that we have such major routes nearby and we have loads of satellite stations i'm sure it's extremely difficult for yourselves but knowing the, the highlands and some of the, the less well-known areas of scotland it must be extremely difficult probably something that we could do better in terms of thinking about it early and not just focusing on the pure medicine but thinking about actually what's going to make you feel better as a person be that warmth or blankets or changing your position or little things like that that we probably can achieve at the roadside whilst we can't magic an extra ambulance station or a, a spare crew into every remote corner of the highlands i think people are extremely willing to help when another person is injured i think you know that people are more 
receptive to paramedics than they are police at times. So if there's a house nearby, have you got a hot water bottle? Can we have, you know, a mug or a flask of hot water or something that could help? Or can we bring the patient here? Again, I appreciate at times there's not going to be such locations or, or areas where you, you can see some kind of property, but even giving that consideration of thought of who's around or what else is nearby that we could potentially use, because it could make the world a difference. Listen, Ben, that's been fantastic and really brilliant that you've been able to be so, I guess, honest is probably the kind of critical word in terms of the highs and lows of that whole patient journey. One thing we normally try and do on these podcasts is to get some top tips for basics responders going to incidents just as a way of kind of summarizing the experience i wonder what would your suggestions for three takeaway things that you think that either would make things better or you think that worked well and you would try and encourage people to keep going with three things i'd probably say would be smile because obviously smiles are contagious it's like a yawn if you smile somebody else will smile no matter what situation they're in and i think that can just make somebody feel better be yourself Yes, we are first responders and paramedics, but underneath our uniforms, we are still human, and people recognise that. And I think that's a great quality that we could do. And like I said earlier, be honest. Be honest, and don't beat around the bush. Don't try and fluffy things up, because in the long run, it's not going to help. So yeah, smile, be yourself, and always be honest with your patients. Ben, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experience with us. No, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.